Amen. Good morning, Harvest. You can go ahead and have a seat. And Harvest Kids, you can go ahead and head into the fellowship hall for your class. Thank you guys for joining us in here this morning. But hey, if you're visiting with us this morning, my name is Andrew Watkins, and I have the privilege of serving here at Harvest Annapolis as an associate pastor. Whether you're joining us in person this morning or you're tuning in online, we're so thankful that you have chosen to spend part of your Sunday morning with us. As Pastor Dan said earlier, if you are visiting, we've got a gift for you, and we would love to, to get to know you and just know how we can best pray for you and love you and serve you. And so we would be honored if you would uh, connect with us after uh, the service for just a few moments, uh, catch somebody with a, with a lanyard where, uh, around their necks. And uh, we just want to know you, love you and pray for you. Uh, so, but let's go ahead and get into God's word together this morning. So if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles or your phones or whatever it is that you tend to use to get your eyes on God's word. And if you would, would you meet me in John chapter one? Again, this morning, we're going to be in John chapter one, verses 29 through 34, as we uh, continue our series through the Gospel of John, we're calling Come and See. And that's exactly what we're going to do this morning, by the way. We're going to come and see Jesus. And so if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I would still really encourage you to uh, find a way to follow along with us so you can see what God's Word says for yourself. There's a couple ways you could do that. You can just pull out a phone and Google John 1 ESV and it'll pop right up. Or we've got some paper Bibles in the back of the room that you could use. And if you don't have one at all, uh, we would be honored if you would just take one of those and keep it uh, as our gift to you. Uh, We would love for you to do that. But John chapter 1, 29 through 34 this morning, and even if you're still making your way uh, there, that's okay. But let me go ahead and read the passage for us this morning and then we'll pray and dive into God's word. John chapter 1, starting in verse 29 says this, the next day he, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. Let me pray for us this morning as we start our time in God's word. Father, um, glorify your son this morning. We want to come and see Jesus. To think of um, what Peter said, where else would we go? You have the the words of eternal life. And so glorify your son this morning. Make him, uh, magnify him in front of us. Help us to come and see him clearly and to respond rightly. To say with John the Baptist, would he increase this morning, but would we decrease? Again, as we've just prayed again, make him big in our eyes and change us this morning as we look at him in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to let you in on a little secret about me that if you've really spent um, just about any amount of time around me, uh, you already know this and you're probably just too gracious to point it out. Uh, So you're ready for the secret. Like the secret, here's the secret. Uh, I'm really not good at making small talk. Yes, yes, you can laugh. My small group especially can laugh. We, we know that. It, it's not that I don't care about the person that I'm talking to, or it's not that I don't genuinely want to connect with them. It's just that as an introvert, I'm just really not good at making small talk. 
And so for that reason, especially as a pastor, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for our awesome connections team because uh, on any given Sunday morning, you can walk in and you'll see my awkward self kind of standing there. And then I'll just see one of them like Carlos or Melissa or Stephanie. I'll see them go up to people and just create a, an entire conversation out of thin air with them. And that, that, that amazes me because I don't have that gift. It really is a gift that I, I don't have. I'm not good at making small talk. And because I'm not good at making small talk, I'm also uh, not good at making introductions either. So like, if I have to introduce myself or someone else, I pretty much uh, default to reciting their resume or, or some hobbies about them, something I know about them. Like this is Jonathan, he, he plays the guitar or, or, or uh, this is Rebecca, she's a physical therapist or, 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 or Thomas is, is here somewhere and Thomas is unfortunately a Philadelphia Eagles fan. I'll go with something like that. <laughs> Or, or to go with a template that really works for the, the majority of our church, I could go, uh, this is fill-in-the-blank name. Uh, he or she uh, is in the fill-in-the-blank branch of the military or three-letter government agency, and that's how we can introduce them. That works for a lot of our church. In other words, because I'm not great at making introductions, I end up just saying what they do or what they like or what their, what their hobbies are instead of getting to the core of who they really are. But again, there's, there's really some people who are just awesome at making introductions. Like instead of staying in the surface level realm of, of hobbies or work or the weather, they can get to know you quickly. And then instead of just repeating your resume as they introduce you to someone else, they can, they can introduce you for who you really are. They can get to the essence of your identity. John the Baptist was one of those people. You can say that John the Baptist was a professional introducer, and and what I say when I mean that is not that he's the guy with the the fancy tux and the microphone and the big voice who introduces people as they get ready to go into the boxing ring. That's not what we're talking about. But John the Baptist was a professional introducer. It was his job. It's what he was put on this earth by God to do, And, and we can say he only had one client. That client was Jesus Christ. And this morning... John the Baptist wants to introduce us. He wants to do his job and introduce us to Jesus. So maybe you're like Andrew. Um, I already know Jesus. Uh, met him a long time ago. I, I know him well, so I'm not sure this is really all that necessary. Maybe we should just talk about something else, uh, something deeper for, for say. And, and to that, I would just say two things. First of all, there is nothing and no one deeper or greater than Jesus Christ, our Savior. We cannot exhaust his riches, so, uh, so no to that. And number two, I would say, let's just let John do his job. Like, he's good at this. Let's let the master introducer do his thing because he's not just gonna give us Jesus' resume. He's not gonna just give us some biographical information. He's going to, to tell us who Jesus is at his core. He's gonna tell us who Jesus really is and then urge us to, to look at Jesus, to behold him and to be changed by him. And so if you're taking notes this morning, here's our big idea, our one sentence overarching theme of the passage that'll tie it together for us. Our our big idea this morning is simply this, come and see Jesus for exactly who he is. That's what John wants us to do this morning as he makes his introduction. He just wants us to, to come and see Jesus for exactly who he is. Because this is a moment that the last 28 verses that we've looked at over the past two weeks have been pointing to. The anticipation's been building throughout the Gospel of John. We could, we could say that the prologue, those first 18 verses that we looked at two weeks ago, was kind of like the, the movie trailer to, to draw us in and build our interest and get us to say, who is this word that became flesh and dwelt among us, John? Who, who is this that you're calling the, the life and light of the world? Like, I want to know him. We want to be introduced to him. 
And so then last week we met John the Baptist and we saw some people asking John the Baptist, are, are you him? Are you the one that we're supposed to be looking for? Are you the Messiah? Are you who we're looking for? And he's like, nope, not me. You got the wrong person. But I'll introduce you to him if you want. And so by the time we get to verse 29, we're like, yes, John, do your job. Introduce us. Who is this Jesus? We want to we know him. And so he will introduce us this morning. In our passage this morning, Jesus finally takes center stage in the gospel of John. And, and, and we can say, John comes and sits next to us to answer our question, John, who is Jesus? Like who really is Jesus to his core? And so he's going to answer that question. First, he says that Jesus is the lamb of God provided. He says that Jesus is the lamb of God provided. If you still have the gospel of John open, just look back with me at verse 29, just that one verse. Again, he says that the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You know, they say that familiarity breeds contempt and whoever they are that say that are right. And what they mean when they say that familiarity breeds contempt is that the more familiar you are with something, the more you run the risk of losing your sense of awe and amazement at that thing. The more you run the risk of becoming comfortable with something to a degree that you really shouldn't be. And John's phrase here is a perfect example of that. We're extremely familiar with the phrase, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We know it, we talk about it, we even sing about it a lot, and we should. One of the songs that we love to sing as a church is literally called the Lamb of God. You know the words, the Lamb of God in my place, his blood poured out, my sin erased. It was my death, you died, I am raised to life. Hallelujah, the Lamb of God. Great song, great words, great truths. We should sing about that truth. We should rejoice in that reality that the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world, but we should never lose our awe of the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that takes away my sin. But all too often, I'm afraid that we have. All too often, those Words don't even cause us to think twice about what our greatest need really is and how Jesus has met that need fully and finally on the cross. Friends, it is a big deal that Jesus is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God is the only hope for humanity and and it's it's not just here in, in John chapter one that we find the Lamb of God. It is really one of the major themes throughout scripture. And so just for, for a moment, let's hit the pause button on, on John. Let's take a look at the Lamb of God across the span of scripture. It's all throughout scripture. First, he was sought. You know the story. Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve sinned and plunged all of humanity into sin and separation from God. And there was no way back for for any of us on our own. We needed a, a substitute, a sacrifice. And so the lamb was sought. And picture after picture after picture throughout the Old Testament started pointing towards the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. So in Genesis three, right after they sinned, God killed an animal and then used the skin of that animal to clothe Adam and Eve and, and cover their guilt and shame. Something had to die. It was a picture of what was to come. In Exodus chapter 12, after Pharaoh kept refusing to let God's people go, God sent one final, horrible, terrible plague to free his people, the death of the firstborn child of every person in Egypt. But God made a way for his people to be passed over in that judgment. They had to go, and they had to, guess what, get a lamb. 
that was without blemish, a perfect one, and then kill that lamb and sprinkle its blood on the doorposts of their houses so that when judgment came, God would see the blood that had been shed on their behalf that was covering them, and then he would pass over them in judgment. It's a picture. Moving on in Leviticus 14 and number six, the sacrificial system was set up, and in order to make an offering for sin and for guilt, guess what? Lambs had to be killed. The blood would be shed as a sacrifice. It's a picture. It's a gruesome picture, but it's a picture nonetheless. It needs to be a gruesome picture, because guess what? We, we think we're all, all clean and tidy, but our sin is so not. It needs to be a gruesome picture if it's ever even going to scratch the surface of pointing us to the seriousness of our sin and the depths of our depravity and our totality of our need for a savior. So there's this picture of lambs dying. And guess what? None of these lambs individually and all of these lambs collectively would, would, that were sacrificed over thousands of years would never be enough to actually pay for our sins because we needed the lamb of God. It was the lamb of God that was being sought. And in Isaiah 53, he was being prophesied just listen to what the, the, the words of, of Isaiah said as he was prophesying about what the Messiah, the Lamb of God, would be. He says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Isaiah prophesied that as he was moved by the Holy Spirit. But guess what? They had to keep waiting. For 700 more years, the Lamb of God kept being, being sought. They were looking for him. They were waiting for him. And then guess what? He was sent he was sought and then he was sent. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he what? He, he gave, he sent, he provided his only son. What grace that God would send his son to us when we could not get to him. And in the fullness of time, as Galatians chapter four says, he was born, he came, not a, not a minute too soon or a moment too life, his son came he took on flesh, he was born, he walked around, he lived among us. And, and in John 1.29, John the Baptist points to him this morning where we are and says, this is him. This is the lamb of God that we've been looking for. This is the one we've been seeking. And Jesus, the lamb of God, had to be perfect, just like all those Old Testament sacrifices had to be perfect. And he was. He lived the perfect, sinless life so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins. His perfection, his sinlessness is what qualified him to be the Lamb of God who would be our substitute, who could be the sacrifice for our sins. So he was 
sought and he was sent. And then about 33 years later, he was sacrificed. Hebrews 9.22 says that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Goes on to say in Hebrews 9 this, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages, what? To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's awesome. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, sacrificed himself. He, he didn't make a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. He sacrificed himself on our behalf, on your behalf, on my behalf, so that when he died on the cross in our place as our substitute in order to take the punishment for our sins, the punishment that should have been ours, and to pay the penalty that we could not pay, we couldn't pay it, but he was then died and he buried and was rose again from the grave three days later, so that in in order to finish John 3.16, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. That's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the free gift of salvation by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. That Lamb was sought. He was sent. He was then sacrificed. Now moving all the way to the end of Scripture, in Revelation chapter 5, he's celebrated What's all of heaven celebrating right now? They're not celebrating me. They're not celebrating you. They're not celebrating us. They're celebrating the Lamb of God. In Revelation 5, the same John who wrote the Gospel of John that we're looking at is given a vision of heaven, and here's what he saw. He says, Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. And all of that, all of what we just talked about is why it's a big deal for John the Baptist here in John 1:29 to look at Jesus as he's coming towards him and say out loud for everyone who was within earshot, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like this is him. This is who he really is. This is the one that we've been looking for. This is the one that was sent. This is the one that was sacrificed. This is the one that will be celebrated for all of eternity. Behold him. Look at him. And so my question for you right now is simply this. Have you seen him clearly? Have you seen Jesus for exactly who he is? Do you know Jesus as the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin? If not, I'd invite you this morning to take a look at Jesus and see him for who he is. Repent, turn from your sin, place your faith in him for salvation once and for all. No matter who you are or what you've done, God's free gift of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ is available to you if you will turn from your sins and place your faith in him. 
love to talk with you after the service about what that means. But I encourage you to consider Jesus today. For the rest of us, though, similar question. Have you seen him lately? Do you behold him regularly for exactly who he is as the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin? Or has familiarity bred contempt in your life for Jesus, the Lamb of God? Occasionally I'm asked why it is that I put the gospel in every sermon that I preach. And because as the argument goes, you know, most of us here are already Christians. We presumably already know Jesus. So why do we need to do the gospel every week? Why? Like, let's move on to other things. The great reformer Martin Luther was once asked that question. The story is told of uh, someone coming up to Martin Luther and asking, Pastor, why is it week after week that you just preach the gospel to us? And in so Martin Luther-like snark and sarcasm, which is part of why I love him, he says the reason is because week after week after week, you forget it. You forget the gospel. I think he's onto something here. What he, what he meant is not that we suffer from short-term memory loss and cognitively forget the message of the gospel, but what he means is that we, week after week, we, we go out those doors and we live lives as though the gospel were not true in our lives. We, we go out there and we, we live either as people who are determined to be our own saviors or as people who, who, who don't seem to need a savior at all. Practically speaking, we live as though the Lamb of God need not exist as far as we're concerned, except for maybe an hour and a half on Sunday mornings when we gather here. Don't forget who he is. The reminder remains, let me say along with John, look at Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. Don't forget who he is and what he's done. And then, but then I want you to live in light of that reality. Behold Jesus every day because of who he really is as the Lamb of God who has taken away your sins. But John is not done with his introduction. He says not only is Jesus the Lamb of God provided, he also says that Jesus is the eternal God revealed. Second, he says that Jesus is the eternal God revealed. If you still have God's word open, look with me at verses 30 and 31. John says this, he says, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. So question for you, what are some of your earliest memories in life, in, in childhood? For whatever reason, uh, one of my earliest memories was when my dad had his gallbladder removed. Like weird, I know, I get it, strange memory, but, but trust me, it gets better, don't worry. My dad's gallbladder is not the focal point of this story. That's, that's not really the greatest memory. In fact, I don't really remember anything about my dad's gallbladder. I don't remember the pain leading up to it. I don't remember any of that. What I remember was being with my sisters and my grandparents when my parents came home from the hospital and they brought me a toy F-14 uh, Tomcat, like the one that was in the movie Top Gun. I was probably about five years old at the time, and, and other than that, everything around that event is, is pretty fuzzy, and everything before that's really, really non-existent, and I'm sure that you know what that's like. I'm sure you have some, some early memories in childhood that are kind of there, kind of not fully, and then before that, like, just blank, nothing. I'm sure you know what that's like, but think about this. Jesus is the eternal God, and what that means is that from eternity past, he has always existed, he has always been, he has always known. There are no fuzzy early memories for him because he's always been God. 
As we saw in John 1.1, in the beginning was the word. That's Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then that, that word became flesh and dwelt among us. The eternal God stepped into time. And that's what John's getting at here in verses 30 and 31 as he continues his introduction of Jesus. In verse 30, he says that Jesus ranks before me because he was before me. And if you're paying close attention when he says that, you might be tempted to kind of interrupt John here and say, hold on a second, John. Like, I mean, we already know you're six months older than Jesus. So, so how in the world is he before you? Like, that doesn't make any sense mathematically. It's because Jesus is the eternal God revealed. In fact, although John was born before Jesus. Jesus existed before John. And not only did Jesus exist before John, in a very real sense, Jesus made John because John 1.3 told us that all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Like Jesus is John's creator. That's how he was before him. And yet the next thing John says is even more interesting. In verse 31, he says, I myself did not know him. But for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. So again, what do you mean, John? Like, what do you mean you didn't know him? He's your second cousin, earthly speaking. You mean to tell us that, that when Mary and Joseph and Jesus came up to the temple in, in Jerusalem, they didn't kind of hang around for an extra couple of days to visit with, with Elizabeth and Zechariah, and that, that you and Jesus as, as toddlers didn't play out in the backyard, and you didn't share peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? You really mean to tell us, John, that, 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 that you've never met Jesus? Is that what you're saying here? That's not what he means. It doesn't mean that he didn't know Jesus. He means he didn't know who Jesus really was until now. Like verse 31 says, Jesus hadn't been revealed yet. That didn't happen until Jesus' baptism. All John knew at first was that God had sent him to baptize with water and to point people to the one who would come and then God would make it clear who that was when that one he was pointing to did come. We'll get to what that moment looked like here in a few minutes, but the point is through his baptism, Jesus was revealed as the eternal God of the universe. And for that reason, John rightly and humbly says, he ranks before me. Like John gets it. He understands his role in relation to the eternal God revealed. Like, like Jesus calls the shots, not me. He's in charge, not me. I'm here to serve him, not the other way around. Like I'm at his beck and call. Do you share that attitude towards Jesus? Do you see him for exactly who he is? Are you submitting to him right now in every aspect of your life? You can't assume that because not everybody does, no matter how religious they might seem. Submission to Jesus says the eternal God revealed isn't automatic, though it should be. John chapter eight, Jesus is having one of his usual back and forth with some of the Jewish religious leaders. And at one point he, he tells them, if God were your father, you would love me for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. That's, that's totally in line with what, what we're saying this morning, right? Like he's eternal. He's sent by God and he is God. That's what Jesus is saying here. And then he goes on to confront them about the fact that, that they won't listen to him. And, and he says this, he says, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason that you do not hear them is because you are not of God. Then they really start going at him to the point where they basically say, you're, you're demon-possessed, you're out of your mind, they're, they're lobbing all kinds of insults at him. And then Jesus says the thing that really pushes them over the edge. He says, if anyone keeps my word, 
he will never taste death. And they, they, they lose it. They bring Abraham into this discussion because Abraham's like, like everything to them. And they say, see, now we know that you're demon possessed. We know you're out of your mind. You, we know you have no idea what you're talking about because Abraham, he was God's man. Like if anyone has ever lived that kept God's word, it was Abraham. And we already know Abraham died. So, so clearly you are absolutely out of your mind. Jesus says, yeah, I know Abraham. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. And he saw it and he's glad about it. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And that's like the mic drop moment here because what he's saying and what they know he's saying here is I'm the eternal God revealed. So they knew what I am meant. They knew that's how Yahweh revealed himself for the first time when, when Moses asked him what his name was in Exodus 3 and God said, I am who I am. And now Jesus is standing before them saying the same thing. He's saying, I am. I'm the eternal God revealed right here in front of you. You're looking at him, come and see. And so they picked up stones to throw at him. See, not everybody reacts like John the Baptist did to the eternal God being revealed not everybody will go. He ranks before me. When you come and see Jesus for exactly who he is, as the eternal God revealed, as the one with all authority, you'll either love him or you'll hate him. There's really not any middle ground to stand on. Indifference is not an option. You'll either surrender to him with humility or you'll swell up against him in pride. So, so which is it? I've already asked you this morning, have you seen him clearly? So now let me ask you, are you surrendering to him daily? Does he truly rank before you? Or are you somehow with some crazy idea trying to pull rank on the eternal God of the universe? When Jesus ranks before you, he gets to set the agenda for your day. When Jesus ranks before you, he gets to determine how you treat the people around you. When Jesus ranks before you, he gets to decide how you spend your time and your energy and your money when Jesus ranks before you, he's in charge because he's the one that's the eternal God revealed. But all too often, each of us in our own way is tempted to take on the mentality of Julius Caesar, to take on his approach to life. I came, I saw, and I conquered. It's about me, it's about what I can do, it's about my goals and my success and my kingdom while I just keep Jesus over here in the corner kind of as a spiritual mascot to help me along when I really, really need some help. But an encounter with the eternal God revealed blows that mentality out of the water. Amen. Because when you truly come and see Jesus for exactly who he is, it's no longer I came, I saw, and I conquered. It becomes I came, I saw, and I surrendered. So are you surrendering to him daily? John's introducing us to Jesus in a magnificent way, but he's not done. He says Jesus is the lamb of God provided. He says he's the eternal God revealed. And finally this morning, he tells us that Jesus is none other than the son of God confirmed. The son of God confirmed. One last time, look back with me at verses 32 through 34. It says this, and John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. 
I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the son of God. You know, last week, Pastor Dan talked about how being a Christian witness is not really all that different from being a legal witness. And now John is ready to take the stand and tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help him, God. His final testimony here about the identity of Jesus will not be based on hearsay, evidence, or speculation, but on what he has seen with his own eyes and what he has experienced in the first person and in what God has supernaturally confirmed in public. Yes, John's describing the events of what happened when Jesus was baptized here, but the focus in the gospel of John is different from the focus in the other gospels. The other gospels really, really focus on the events, what actually happened with the baptism itself, but John's focus here is different. He, he focuses on, on who this baptism confirms Jesus to be. So, so I apologize if you were looking for all the answers of why Jesus was baptism, but, but that's not for this morning, that's for another day. Remember, John's introducing us to Jesus. That's his point here. He's, he's focused on who Jesus is, so that's where we want our focus to be as well. We're not told how or when, but apparently when God had commissioned John the Baptist to be out baptizing people in the witness and pointing them towards the Messiah to come, he told John what verse 33 tells us, that, that he on whom you speak the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes, not with water like you've been doing, John, but who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And that's important here because it, it shows the Holy Spirit operating differently than he always had in the past. A lot of us tend to think that the Holy Spirit only shows up in people's lives in the New Testament somewhere after Acts chapter two, but that's, that's totally not true. He's the eternal God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity has always been there and he's always been active. He's, he's just as much God as God the Father and God the Son are. So he's always been there, but but in the past, we've never seen him coming and staying until now. The Old Testament, when the Holy Spirit would, would come down, he'd, he'd only be there temporarily to empower a particular person for a particular t task for a particular time, and then he would leave. But the Old Testament prophets had always said that when the Messiah would come, things would change. That when the Messiah would come, the Holy Spirit would come and, and rest on him and remain on him. And the fulfillment of that would be confirmation that this is the Son of God. So for instance, in Isaiah 11, Isaiah speaking for God about the Messiah says this. He says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. Then in Isaiah 42, Isaiah again speaking on behalf of God about the Messiah says this, he says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Then in Isaiah 61, the Messianic prophecy says this, the, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And the awesome thing about that prophecy in Isaiah 61 is that, that in Luke chapter four, shortly after Jesus was baptized in the gospel of Luke, he went into a synagogue 
And he picked up a scroll that contained the words of Isaiah 61 and he read them out loud and then he sat down and said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, all that's talking about me. That's what Jesus is saying there. I'm the one that this points to. Like mic drop moment in the temple there. And so at his baptism, the, the Holy Spirit coming down and resting and remaining on Jesus was the proof that this is the Son of God confirmed. And John's like, I saw it happen. I saw it with my own two eyes. I was out there baptizing one day and he, he came to me and I didn't want to baptize him, but he, he wanted me to and so I did. And when I, when, when, when I baptized him, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And guess what? It remained on him just like the prophets said it would. And then I heard a voice from heaven saying to him, you are my beloved son and you I am well pleased. We all heard it. Everyone who was out there heard it. This is who he is, the son of God confirmed. It's who Jesus is. But it doesn't stop there. All of that has implications for us as well. Look at the end of verse 33. He says, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And here's, here's why that's important. So remember, Jesus didn't come for himself. He's not just the one who is confirmed by the Holy Spirit and on whom the Holy Spirit rests, but the one who will then baptize others as well with the Holy Spirit. I know that sounds really mysterious, kind of complicated, maybe confusing, but here, here's all this means. The Son of God who is confirmed by the Holy Spirit will also then give life to others through the Holy Spirit. Think about that. It's, it's not just about what happened to him to confirm who he is, but about what he would do for others to change their lives. Guess what? It's prophesied too. Ezekiel 36 says this, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What a difference. What a change. The moment we put our faith in him, Jesus baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And when that happens, regeneration happens. Dead hearts come alive. New life is given. And again, that's one of the themes of the gospel of John. Remember a few weeks, Pastor Dan said that a few weeks ago. One of the themes, John chapter 20, is new life in his name. So when Jesus baptizes us with the Spirit, we are saved, we are sealed, and we're starting to be sanctified. Our lives start changing. Godly fruit starts being produced in our lives, not because of our hard works, but because of what the, the Spirit is doing in us. It's Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What a change. What a change from how we were before Christ. What, what grace. We're not going to be perfect right away, but progressing. Changing, being changed by his grace. Is that happening to you? Is it happening to you? Is the Holy Spirit at work in your life? See, from this moment on in John chapter one, the world would never be the same again because the Lamb of God was provided. The eternal God was revealed. The Son of God was confirmed all in one person, fully God, fully human, Jesus Christ. This is who he is. We've already asked, have you seen him clearly? And I hope you have. We've asked, are you surrendering to him daily? I hope you are. 
So one final question for us, will you share him boldly? I hope you will. This is what John gave his life to. Verse 34, he says, and I have seen and borne witness that this is the son of God. He gave his life to the phrase, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look to Jesus was his theme because what could matter more? What message could be more important? What topic of conversation could be more worthwhile than Jesus? Because listen, if all this is true, and it is, and you've come and seen Jesus for exactly who he is, then what else would you want to devote your life to than introducing others to Jesus? And no, I don't mean going out in the wilderness and eating bugs and dressing weird like John the Baptist. I don't mean that. I don't mean necessarily becoming a pastor, a missionary, church planner, though that would be awesome. What I mean is that whether you are a mother or father at home, or a soldier on base, or a teacher in the classroom, or a construction worker on the job, job site, I mean, you'd spend your life sharing him boldly, simply introducing others to Jesus. Just like we see John doing here. Just like we'll see the disciples doing next week. All, all they did was go and find the people they knew and say, hey, let, let me introduce you to Jesus. I've met the Messiah. Just like the woman at the well at John chapter four. She met Jesus and then he changed her life and she, she ran into town and, and literally all, all her message was, was I've met the master. Would you come and meet him too? That's all it means to introduce people to Jesus. He's worth it. He's worth it when you come and see him for exactly who he is. So my prayer for us this morning is behold Jesus. Look at him and don't look away. Would you pray with me as the worship team comes? Father, fix our eyes on your son. Fix them there. Don't let us look away even for a millisecond. Where else would we go? Who else would we turn to? Who else can change our lives? Who else can save our souls? No one but Jesus Christ. We need him. Make him the theme of our lives. Help us to see him rightly and clearly as the lamb of God that you've provided, as the eternal God revealed, as the, the son of God confirmed. Help us to see him clearly and fully for who he is so that that vision of who he is would then empower us to live in light of the gospel, to not, for, to not forget it, but to, to, to go into life as people who have been changed and want to introduce others to Jesus. Not for our own sake, not for our own benefit, but for your glory. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.